You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Skylark Lounge Holds Its Own Against Denver's More Famous Venues by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Casa Bonita is Losing Employees Before They Really Even Open by Kevin Beatty. And Aurora Says It Won't Help Denver Police in Big Moments. What Does That Mean for Day-to-Day Policing by Tony Gorman. From Westward, I'll be reading Fairmount Cemetery Now Offering Pet Loss Services by Amber Taufin and Denver Researchers Find New Ways That City Surroundings Worsen People's Health by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Skylark Lounge Holds Its Own Against Denver's More Famous Venues by Robert Davis. Many musicians dream of playing at Denver's famous venues like Red Rocks Amphitheater, Mission Ballroom, and the historic Paramount Theater, but locals say several smaller venues are just as noteworthy, if not more so. One such place is the Skylark Lounge in the Baker neighborhood. The Skylark first opened in 1943 at 58 South Broadway as a bar for local workers. It stayed in the same building for almost 60 years before moving down the street to its current location at 140 South Broadway in 2003, according to city property records. Locals know Skylark for its well-stocked horseshoe bar and the checkerboard floor that decorates the upstairs concert hall known as the Bobcat Club. The bar was put up for sale in May 2020 by its previous owner, Scott Heron, who had purchased the bar for about $82,000 in 1998. Heron told Westward at the time that he didn't think the bar would sell anytime soon because the coronavirus pandemic was just getting started. But the sales tag caught the eye of one well-connected local, Bob Ashby, who has been living in Baker for almost 20 years. Ashby contacted his longtime friend Nathaniel Rateliff, yes, the one who makes music with the night sweats, and the two formed a partnership of investors to take over the venue in 2021, Westward reported. It was kind of a no-brainer, Ashby told Westward. We both love this neighborhood. It's been really important to us, and we really want to add something back to it. After some light renovations, the Skylark reopened in January of 2022 and has provided both upstart musicians and touring acts a place to perform for a Denver audience. The venue hosts live music most nights of the week, and ticket prices often range between $5 and $15, according to Skylark's website. Rachel McQuag, a local musician who performs under the pseudonym Lonely Choir, told Denver Voice in an interview that the Skylark offers an encouraging environment that makes it easy to book recurring gigs there. One way it promotes that kind of environment is by separating the live music from the bar crowd. When Skylark first opened, the live music stage was tucked into a cramped corner of the room, which made it uncomfortable to play and easy for the bar crowd to tune out the entertainers. Now the live music stage is upstairs in the Bobcat Club, 
where the room is oriented around the stage and concert goers have their own bar. It's just one of those places you walk into and you see it's a peaceful and safe environment, McQuag said. McQuag added that the attention local acts receive from Skylark's sound technicians during gigs is another thing that separates it from other venues in Denver. McQuag says she has played at venues where it felt like the staff was rushing her up on the stage to sing into a half-working microphone for a half hour before getting rushed back out the door. She added that those kinds of situations don't happen at Skylark. The Skylark is definitely a place that has pushed me to continue to want to play around Denver and to pursue music as a career, McQuag said. Warren Bregman, the vocalist for local funk rap group Coast to Ghost, told Denver Voice that the Skylark helped his band network with other local acts, get exposure to new fan bases, and pay their rent on time. Bregman added that Skylark stands out among the other venues along Broadway because of how close it is to neighborhood restaurants like Voodoo Donuts and Illegal Pete's. That makes it easy for local acts to get a good bite to eat after they perform, Bregman said, and for concert goers to continue their night out after seeing a concert. They know how to cultivate a vibe at Skylark, Bregman said. It's a great spot to grab some drinks and see a show, and it has this institution-like identity here in Denver. It's really a hidden gem. You can check out who will be performing at Skylark by visiting their website at skylarklounge.com events. The next two articles are from Denverite. Casa Bonita is losing employees before they really even open by Kevin Beatty. Corey Blair was absolutely floored to land a job at Casa Bonita. The career bartender grew up in Denver, and his family brought him to the West Colfax landmark long before South Park introduced the world to the quirky, immersive space. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of the show, had purchased the restaurant after COVID shut it down and its former owners filed for bankruptcy. Coloradans, along with people all over the country, marveled at the rebirth with anticipation. And Blair rode that wave of excitement. That first walkthrough on the first day, I was literally like a kid in the candy store, he told us. It was so exciting. Everything is awesome in there. They've done a fantastic job with the whole renovation. They've done a fantastic job with the food. But the nostalgia and hype didn't last long. The restaurant, originally slated to open in May, has languished in an extended soft open phase, which has limited employee hours. Management also changed employees' pay structures, cutting out all tips and opting instead for hourly wages. Between that pressure and what Blair described as a general lack of transparency from his higher-ups, people have begun to leave, and some of those who remain have begun to organize. On July 12th, members of the newly formed We Are Team CASA group issued a letter to management. They demanded clarity on the timeline for a full opening, a change in pay structure, a direct line of communication between staff and managers, and the opportunity for fired workers, who they say were let go for not signing a revised contract, to get their jobs back. It's frustrating to see us have to go this route with the way that employees are being paid and the suffocation of the lack of hours, Blair said. Blair was one of 50-ish bartenders hired last spring. Casa Bonita currently has 50 open bartender positions. When he first got the job, Blair said he was promised minimum wage plus tips 
a standard deal for front-of-house restaurant workers. That was more or less his arrangement at the 16th Street Mall Hard Rock Cafe, which pays enough to keep his bills covered before it permanently closes. He said some colleagues quit jobs to be available for Casa Bonita. They wanted us to be there full-time, 40 hours a week. We're going to be so busy that you're not going to know what to do with yourself. And we were all excited, he said. So everybody, a lot of people, tried to make it work. He said he and his new colleagues knew they'd have to wait through a warm-up period until they could really make their bread, but they never expected it to last so long. We were all comfortable with understanding that it was going to be a slow, soft opening, he told us. It's coming on to two and a half, three months. Then, late last month, managers called everyone into a meeting, asking they sign new contracts to fundamentally alter how they were paid. Management cut out tips completely, even taking the option off of credit card receipts, Blair said, and issued new hourly wages for everyone. Rachel Lane, Blair's colleague behind the bar, said Casa Bonita is still hiring because they lost staffers during the sudden shift. They sit us down and they forcibly made us sign this contract and said, if you have a problem with it, here's the door, she recalled. A lot of people, they realized, I'm getting scheduled 14 hours a week and that comes to about $300 a check once a week after taxes. And you know, this is Denver. We can't live on that. So a lot of people went and got new jobs. She said some of her co-workers were fired for not signing the contract. She said some didn't sign simply because they had missed the meeting. As of Thursday, Casa Bonita had 339 positions listed on their website, all but one paid with hourly wages. Their site says they have open spots for 68 prep cooks, 61 cooks, 50 bartenders, and 39 hosts. Bartending jobs are now listed at $30 an hour. Cooks can make between $18 and $23 an hour. Prep cooks can earn between $17.27 and $19 an hour. While Blair and Lane are upset about losing lucrative tips, limited hours have become a more immediate concern. In this ongoing soft open, Casa Bonita is only accessible to guests who are on email list who, and who also win a lottery for a meal ticket. It was only open on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights until last weekend, when Blair said they opened their first lunch slot. Casa Bonita's website advertises medical, dental, and vision insurance for full-time employees, but Blair said they need to work 30 hours a week to access these benefits, and so far they haven't gotten close. And while the restaurant is fielding guests, Blair said he still hasn't seen a full dinner rush. Each day when he starts his shift, he asks how many customers are booked for the evening. It's always about 900 people, a third of what he said he and his colleagues should be serving during a five-hour dinner rush. Both he and Lane said they have no idea why the period of limited access has lasted so long. I think that there was a little bit of a holdup with the speed at which the kitchen was working for a little while, but it seems like it's go time now, Lane said. If they hadn't made the decisions that they did, then we would be absolutely fully staffed to be open from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., like they said they were going to be. Lane, who is also a career bartender, said she's dealt with all kinds of bad treatment at work, but this one has hit differently. I've definitely faced every sort of oppression going through it, just being treated like you don't matter, she said, 
but it's never been such a heavy impact on me financially, you know? You can deal with a certain level of BS if you're collecting a good paycheck and that gets all your bills paid. But if you're not getting any sort of respect or being heard and you're not getting paid well, that's just a whole other situation in itself. Parker and Stone recently gave an interview to 5280 telling the magazine they were excited for their new venture despite that on paper it's a very, very bad idea. Only people as rich and silly as Trey and I would do this, Stone told them. This is definitely an indulgence. We want to do it for the state of Colorado. Blair said he doubts the duo have much input on the day-to-day -day operation. We tried to get in touch with Parker and Stone, leaving messages with their agents and Parker's dad. We'll let you know if they get in touch. In the meantime, Casa Bonita's management, which is accessible only through their representatives at Feed Media Public Relations, sent only a short statement that they strive to create the best working environment for its employees and will continue to make ourselves available to talk to employees about their concerns. Their representatives did not confirm that there were already positions to replace, nor did they explain why they changed their pay structure. Blair said he hasn't heard much more than that, and that none of his managers responded to We Are Team Casa's letter. He might understand if anyone told him and his colleagues anything, he added. I want to see a resolution that works for all parties involved. I feel like, right now, management is just trying to hold their cards close, and they're not wanting to disclose certain information, or maybe they don't even have the information, or I'm not sure. But it really boils down to communication and understanding, he told us. Aurora says it won't help Denver police in big moments. What does that mean for day-to-day -day policing? By Tony Gorman. Questions and concerns still remain after Aurora City Council's 5-4 vote to suspend its mutual aid agreement with the City and County of Denver. Aurora's move means the City will not deploy its officers into Denver if the Denver Police Department requests assistance for things like protests or rallies. But beyond that, it's unclear if this would include other major events, like, say, a Nuggets NBA Championship Parade or Pride Fest, or sudden emergencies. Peter Schulte, the public safety client group manager for the Aurora City Attorney's Office, says normal policing should not be affected. The day-to-day -day actions where we have officers that work together along the jurisdictional boundaries of Denver and Aurora would not change. That's the other aspect of the law that deals with those, Schulte said. It does not say that nothing in this resolution shall be deemed to change the legal ability of officers from either jurisdiction to cross over jurisdictional lines on day-to-day -day situations as allowed by other law. The dispute between the two cities stems from the George Floyd protests in 2020 when DPD asked surrounding law enforcement agencies to assist with crowd control. The city and county of Denver reached settlements with 12 protesters totaling $14 million. The settlement didn't include Aurora's officers. Now protesters are suing that city, and Aurora officials want Denver to indemnify their officers to avoid other costs. A Denver police spokesman said in an email statement that the resolution will not affect DPD's approach to day-to-day -day operations and investigations of incidents that overlap our jurisdiction. However, they would not comment further due to the pending lawsuits. But those reassurances did not appease concerns from critics.
If I'm a Denver officer and Aurora City Council passes what's essentially a big middle finger to Denver, I'm going to make it pretty challenging to solve some of those day-to-day -day crimes, Aurora Mayor Pro Tem Curtis Gardner, who voted against the measure, said during City Council this week. He voted against the measure. Gardner expressed future concerns over the relationship between the two departments. He also pushed for Mayor Mike Kaufman to discuss the issue with Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, who had been sworn into office this week. Johnston's office has not responded to Denver right for comment. What my concern is by passing something like this, unofficially behind the scenes, day-to-day -day police work where a car is stolen in Aurora and ends up in Denver, or a drug case or any other crime that crosses city's borders because we all know criminals and really nobody cares about city borders, he said. We have a long-standing, close working relationship with the Denver Police Department and diligently work with their leadership team and officers to keep our communities safe every day. That relationship will not change, Aurora Interim Police Chief Art Acevedo said in a statement Tuesday. In the rare instances of large-scale events that lead to formal requests for large-scale mutual aid responses from Aurora officers, we will continue to assess each of them on an individual, case-by-case -case basis, Acevedo said. The Aurora Police spokesperson, Sidney Edwards, said the department would not comment further due to pending litigation. The following articles are from Westward. Fairmount Cemetery Now Offering Pet Loss Services by Amber Taufin Losing a family member is never easy, which the team at Fairmount Funeral Home Cemetery and Crematory knows all too well. And when that family member is a beloved pet, sometimes certain services just aren't available in the same way they're provided for humans. That's something that Fairmount is changing with a new suite of services under the Family Pet Loss Care umbrella. This historic cemetery is now offering private pet cremation in a dedicated animal cremation facility, personalized memorialization, and more. The thought had been there for a while, notes Kendra Biggs, president of Fairmount Cemetery. We do our best to provide services to celebrate lives, so now let's serve the whole family. Fairmount has performed about 10 pet cremations since February, and will start offering memorial services in August. Fairmount is the second oldest cemetery in Denver, with an arboretum, multiple chapels and memorials, historic graves, and a wealth of antique rose bushes spread across its 280 acres in the heart of the city. William N. Byers, Robert Spear, Ann Evans, Dr. Justina Ford, Frederick Bonfi, and Ralph Carr are all buried on its grounds. When they were interred, pets were not allowed. But that could change one day, too. According to Briggs, the services offered for animals are designed to be similar to those provided for humans whenever possible. Transport of the diseased pet from a residence to the funeral home is available. The bereaved owners can book a memorial service, viewing, and even pet grief support. A small chapel that holds up to 60 people has been dedicated to pet services. Fairmount will also provide a DVD tribute video, memorial folders, and a guest registration book. Cremations are done one at a time, and families get their own pet's remains returned to them in an urn, along with a keepsake memorial box containing fur clippings, 
clay and ink paw prints and nose prints, and forget-me-not seeds. We offer garden stones and headstones if people want to put them out in the garden, Briggs says. And while burial services aren't currently available, Fairmont owns some undeveloped land that could one day be used for pet burials, she adds. There will be a grand opening of the facility, the Fairmount Forever Fest, on Saturday, July 29th at Fairmount Funeral Home, 430 South Quebec Street, with a pet blessing at 10 a.m., an unveiling of a monument to service dogs at 11 a.m., and chapel tours at 11.15 a.m. Non-aggressive leash dogs are welcome, says Briggs, who notes that Fairmount hopes to turn this event into an annual pet celebration. Denver researchers find new ways that city surroundings worsen people's health by Bonito El Kelty. Watch your weight, doctors say. Quit smoking, quit drinking, start jogging. In Denver, however, these things might not matter as much as we thought. A University of Colorado Denver study published on July 14th outlines how perfectly healthy people can still suffer from an independent risk factor for severe illness when living in areas with residential buildings, air pollution caused by particulate matter, like dust and smoke, and where public transit is accessible. Now we can say that not only having these medical conditions or being elderly or being overweight is a risk, but also living in an area where you have a lot of multifamily buildings, living in an area with higher particulate matter in the air are independent risk factors, explains Dr. Sarah Rowan, an expert on public health who is one of the authors of the CU Denver study. We know that a lot of chronic health conditions are more clustered in areas that are lower income overall, and this is the first to really tease out those chronic health conditions, Rowan explains. CU Denver researchers used the study, which was published in the science journal PLOS1, to determine why residents in certain neighborhoods often have greater health risks based on where they live. Their research was aimed at better informing city designers and local policymakers, demonstrating that setting often correlates with health in the same way that old age or obesity can. This was especially the case during COVID, which was the basis for the study. During the pandemic, Denver residents who lived in neighborhoods with fewer multifamily homes, townhouses, or apartment buildings, where the air was cleaner, where they could walk or bike without having to cross too many roads, and where there was less public transit, reportedly went to the hospital less often. A person's chances of severe illness are already known to be worse when they're elderly or obese, or if they suffer from chronic illnesses like heart disease or diabetes, which are often found in low-income areas. The CU Denver study found that other risk factors, like where someone lives, also led to severe illness regardless of age, weight, or wealth. Researchers also accounted for race and ethnicity. CU Denver drew from data of more than 18,000 Mile High City residents who were hospitalized for COVID-19 in 2020. Denver neighborhoods like Montbello, Green Valley Ranch, Harvey Park, Westwood, Marley, and Barnum hosted the biggest clusters of COVID hospitalizations, according to researchers. When vaccines were publicly available, Rowan points out, they first went to people with known risk factors, 
like being elderly or an essential worker who regularly dealt with exposure to people. That was what we used for deciding who would get the vaccine first because that was who was the most vulnerable. Who would get the medication when you have limited supplies, she says. The CU Denver study finds new risk factors that Rowan believes should be a major part of public health policy. More research is needed to understand why these newer location-based risk factors play such a large role in people's health, but part of it is obvious, according to the study. Daily access to public transportation and larger crowds leads to people being in more confined spaces for extended periods of time. However, it is possible that transit riding may have other unidentified health risks, the study says. Rowan notes that living in dense buildings and taking public transit are known risk factors for transmitting diseases, but the study focused more on who is getting sicker once they already have the virus, not who gets the virus initially. A lot of these things are risk factors for transmission. As you would expect, a lot of people in a small space, you'll have more transmission, Rowan says. But as for those folks who get the virus, when we think about who's going to get sicker, What's going to predict who's going to get more sick? Those are independent risk factors for severe illness as well. People who live in less transit-rich environments, where there's less air pollution, more parks and trails, and more single-family homes, are healthy because of their neighborhood and how they are able to take advantage of it, according to the study. Residents will often walk more, avoid chronic illness connected to pollution, and be less affected by the stresses of living in crowded areas. Dr. Jeremy Namath, one of the co-authors of the CU Denver study, says the findings aren't just relevant to COVID. Researchers discovered that certain neighborhoods ultimately have a real-life impact on a person's overall health and well-being. It's not just a story about COVID, Namath says. It's a story about people being exposed to the risk factors that make them more susceptible and have major impacts on their overall well-being. We see high rates of asthma in these neighborhoods and heart disease and cardiovascular conditions in the same neighborhoods where we see high COVID rates. The hope is that experts and officials will see just how much of an effect someone's environment can have on them, especially when looking to the future. By heating lessons learned from COVID-19, we may see public health and environmental benefits that extend well beyond the improved control of future respiratory pandemics, the study concludes. Vic Vela shares new health struggles in fourth season of Back from Broken by Katie Cheshire. Colorado Public Radio's Vic Vela is an open book. By now, that should be evident with his personal story of drug addiction and recovery recounted in the first season of his podcast, Back From Broken. But for the newly launched season, Vela is ready to pull back the curtain even more. In the first season of Back From Broken, there was an episode on my story, but now it's going to be kind of a part two, he tells Westward. It details how I deal with health crises while also trying to stay sober, and there's going to be a lot of Denver Nuggets basketball, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Back from Broken, which returned on July 7th, discusses many types of recovery, with its most recent episode featuring the story of a former Major League Baseball player, Drew Robinson, who recovered from a suicide attempt in 2020 and now uses his platform to advocate for more mental health protections. 
the podcast offers a new episode every Friday. People who've appeared on the show have shared some of their own stories of recovery, discussing everything from drug addiction to eating disorders and also grief. Their candidness has caused an emotional response that Vela hasn't seen from any other project he's worked on, he says. I can't overstate that enough, how mind-blowing that is, Vela says, of the many listeners who've shared stories with him. The longtime deadhead even meet, met someone in the bathroom line at Dead & Company's final run of shows at Folsom Field in Boulder earlier this month, who told him that Back From Broken helped him get sober. Vela, who grew up in Longmont, is a lifelong Nuggets fan and got to ride in a fire truck during the team's NBA championship parade. Covering the team and seeing it finally capture an NBA title after going nearly five decades without one came at just the right time for him. It was the emotional lift I just needed, he says. It was the most cathartic thing I've ever experienced. I cried like a baby. It was just magic. Vela, who has HIV, is currently in recovery for his addiction to powder and crack cocaine. This winter, he encountered a new health challenge, diabetes, which came on quickly and severely. His eyesight became so blurry that he couldn't even read text messages, and he lost weight rapidly. Bella went to the doctor for routine blood tests related to his HIV treatment and discovered that his blood sugar was so high he was at risk of imminently falling into a diabetic coma. Diabetes runs in my family, he says. It's no surprise that I have diabetes. It's no surprise that I was going to get diabetes. But for it to accelerate from pre-diabetes to full-blown diabetes and into the stratosphere out of nowhere was really alarming. Doctors told Vela that a November 2022 bout with COVID may have contributed to the rapid onset of diabetes in his body. He's been getting back on track and has since added diabetes treatment to his regimen. Reminding himself of the medical advances he has access to that didn't exist before have kept him positive throughout the difficult process. Vela has a sensor on his abdomen that can show him his blood sugar levels at any time, and he's able to treat his HIV with just one pill every night. It is in my recovery, it is in my soul, to always find the gratitude in everything, he says, or at least try to. That's not easy when you're suffering, but when I do that, I do better. He's also grateful that despite his situation, he's managed to maintain his sobriety. Not once did I ever think of hitting a crack pipe, Vela says. And thank God, because you talk about making it worse when you're sick and you're going through all this shit and you relapse on top of that. If you stay sober and call your friends, then you have a chance. At the beginning of the pandemic, recovery meetings had to be held remotely. So being able to return to in-person meetings has helped Vela stay the course. The phone call is always important, he says, but there's nothing like sitting in a meeting, hearing someone else's story, sitting or standing around in a circle, saying a group prayer at the end of the meeting. It's riskier than ever to be a drug user, Vela believes, on account of fentanyl being mixed into so many drugs now. He used to mix cocaine and morphine, which is easy to mess up, and can be fatal if done wrong. However, Vela always knew what he was getting himself into, which isn't the case for drug users today. Nowadays with fentanyl, it's not just the heavy everyday addicts who are suffering, he says. 
It's the people who are in college who are only taking this pill on a set Saturday night, and they don't wake up. It's in cocaine. It's in meth. Also, people are less likely to know they're drug dealers today because of the Internet. This gives dealers more leeway to sell a harmful product, Vela says, and he urges people to be selective if they plan to use illegal substances. I'm not one of those Prohibition-era people preaching abstinence, he says. I'm just begging you to go to dealers you know and go to dealers who have a good reputation. In sobriety, which began for him in 2015, Vela has gotten the chance to reintroduce himself to the Mile High City, including places like Pete's Kitchen, where he says he used to often eat his only meal of the day in the wee hours of the morning. He used to frequent the white spot on Colfax, where Tom's starlight is now. A friend of his once shattered the pie case there, and the pair ran away before the cops came, Vela says. Now he's much calmer, but he still loves Denver history and being a patron of local businesses. I get to experience Colfax on a whole different plane, Vela says. Although he has made strides in his own recovery and shared his story with others to help them know they can recover too, he says there are still plenty of things he's working on, like his temper, for example. Vela admits to having always had behavioral problems, which led to his barely graduating high school before heading to Metropolitan State University. When he was doing drugs, his temper, in combination with cocaine, would often result in a lot of destruction. Sometimes he still feels like flying off the handle. It's something that I'm always working on with my recovery sponsor, he says. According to Vela, most people who know him now don't realize the extent of his struggles with his anger. Also, most people assume he's an extrovert, probably because he's so open about his life online and in his work. I'm actually rather reclusive, he says. I frustrate friends and family. I don't go to parties or barbecues or weddings or anything like that. Still, he wouldn't trade the bond he's built through his work with people in Colorado for anything. I love the relationship I have with people, he concludes. Punk Rock Saves Lives Festival Raises Mental Health Awareness with Punk Bands by Justin Criado. Denverite Rob Rushing is a 53-year-old punk who just likes throwing shows, as he puts it. For the past eight years, he's organized several late-night gigs for the annual festival Punk Rock Bowling in downtown Las Vegas. It started with one band, one night, and this past year was five bands for four nights straight, he says. And he's bringing that punk-inspired growth to Denver as well. At the tail end of the pandemic, Rushing started an outdoor concert series called Positive Mental Attitude at East Fax Tap on East Colfax Avenue through his nonprofit Punk Rock Saves Lives, which he'd recently co-founded with his wife, Tina, the success of those shows gave him and the Punk Rock Saves Lives crew the idea to host a new punk rock festival linked to the nonprofit's mission and work, which includes providing mental health and harm reduction resources as well as bone marrow registry information for concert and festival attendees. The Punk Rock Saves Lives Festival debuted at Ratio Beer Works in 2022, and the second gathering is set to take place Friday, July 21st, and Saturday, July 22nd, at Ratio's Overland location. We went to Ratio, and I was like, I got this idea for a festival. They were like, yes, Rushing recalls, 
adding that his nonprofit also held its second anniversary party at the brewery last year. We just wanted to party, and it went over really, really well. We took that two-year anniversary party and said, let's go forward with the first festival we did last year, he continues. From what everybody tells me with big festivals, it takes three to four years to not be losing money. You have to stick with it. And we didn't lose money on the first one. That's because Rushing knows how to put on a show. This year's lineup includes Smoking Popes, Flatfoot 56, The Dolly Rots, Egoista, Some Kind of Nightmare, Hospital Socks, Bad Cop, Bad Cop, Potato Pirates, Plasma Canvas, Antagonizers ATL, Nuns of Brixton, Boss's Daughter, Dryer Fire, and All Waffle Trick. There's also a day after party at East Fax on Sunday, July 23rd with Joker's Republic, Bad Year, Swashbuckling Doctors, It Gets Worse, Indecisive, Liam Cahill, and more bands to be announced. It's been a tradition for Punk Rock Saves Lives to release a compilation album too, and festival goers will be able to pick up Punk Rock Saves Lives, the album, Volume 3, via IM Records if they're pressed and shipped in time. The record is only available on vinyl and includes songs from Bowling for Soup's Jarrett Reddick and Rob Felicetti, Anti-Flag's Just Insane, and Urethane with H2O's Toby Morse. All proceeds go directly to supporting the nonprofit in its ongoing work. The Dolly Rots also donated a song still holding on for the album. Guitarist and vocalist Kelly Ogden is excited to play the fest for the first time, especially since we have a lot of friends in common with the organization. We've known Rob for a number of years. It's something that we've always wanted to be a part of, so we're really glad that it worked out this year, she adds. Punk Rock Saves Lives has had a presence at just about every other festival I've ever gone to or we've ever played at. I've listened to their releases in the past. They always put out really cool music, and our friends' bands are usually on them, so it was cool to be a part of that, too. Looking over the bill, she points out local trio Egoista and Some Kind of Nightmare as two of the bands that she's looking forward to seeing live. That said, I'm excited for the whole thing, she laughs. Other than the stacked lineup, the Punk Rock Saves Lives Festival is about much more than just bringing big bands to Denver. The musicians understand that, Rushing says, and are willing to work with the young nonprofit to support its mission. Some acts even offered to play the fest for free, but as a musician himself for such bands as These Roving Years, Rushing firmly believes that artists should be paid for their art, so he's willing to cover gas or, ho or hotel expenses, if nothing else. Punks, on the whole, want to be good to each other. That's why we shaped into this. Luckily, the bands don't rake us over. Everybody's always been great, he adds. That gave us a chance to have some really cool bands without spending a ton of money up front. Then the amazing people at Ratio covered the production. Punk Rock Saves Lives was born after the Rushings left the Love, Hope, Strength Cancer Foundation, which set up booths at music festivals to promote its Get on the List Bone Marrow Registry campaign. The couple would travel the country, stopping at festivals like Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo to help spread the message and collect signatures. Punk Rock Saves Lives was started in the same vein. The co-founders, along with an ever-growing team of volunteers, 
will be at 20 music festivals across the country, as well as five national tours this year. In the past three months, the Rushings drove a combined 31,000 miles to fests and concerts, during which they signed up 1,403 individuals for the bone marrow registry, handed out 1,500 doses of Narcan, an opiate overdose antidote, 800 fentanyl tests, 300 GHB ketamine test coasters, and 1,100 pairs of earplugs. Rob was driving the Punk Rock Saves Lives RV back to Colorado when its engine died in the middle of Kansas. With such a busy schedule remaining, the organization launched a crowdfunding effort. As of July 11th, $6,400 of the $15,000 goal had been raised. Rushing isn't necessarily surprised that Punk Rock Saves Lives has done so well so soon because he's experienced what the DIY scene can do ever since discovering punk music while growing up in Georgia in the 1980s. But the warm reception is also proof that there's a demand for the resources that the organization offers. Surprised is a weird word. It's pleasantly surprising because I believe in our community, but I will say this. Everybody who volunteers for us notices people thanking us for being there more than any other charity work I've ever done. It's really crazy, he says. Now it's like every day at a festival I'm thanked by at least a hundred people literally going, thank you for being here. I follow you online. We love what you're doing. That's gratifying, but it also shows the need in our community for somebody being on the forefront going, all right, it's okay to talk about mental health or if you're going to use, use safely. The nonprofit is already seeing Punk Rock Saves Lives chapters pop up in states such as Virginia and Wisconsin. There's interest in other cities too, including Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Expanding and growing, which includes the festival, are part of the organization's long-term plan, according to Rushing. That also means the co-founding couple will spend less time behind the wheel, but they'll always be doing something like this, he says. We are rallying volunteers around the country. We're going to grow. We're on the precipice of growing and starting to hire more people. That's when we can take the giant leaps, he says, adding that it would be ideal to eventually have several Punk Rock Saves Lives reps around the country to oversee outreach in specific areas. Hosting a flagship event like the Summer Festival only supports that vision. Of course, nonprofits need to raise money to do good, but neither rushing nor punk rock saves lives are in it to get rich either. The crazy low ticket prices, which start at $25 and top out with a $75 VIP option, are proof of that, he adds. If we come close to breaking even or raising a little bit of money, then that's great, and we give the people of Denver a cool experience for not much money, rushing says, adding that any money raised contributes to more good done on site every day. That's the goal, he concludes. The festival is to help eventually fund some more of that, but mainly to give Denver a rad time by using our connections and getting people to come out and have a good time. It's for our hometown. Punk Rock Saves Lives Festival, 6 p.m. Friday, July 21st, and Saturday, July 22nd, Ratio Beer Works, 2030 South Cherokee Street. Tickets are $25 to $75. For more information, visit punkrocksaveslives.org. Craigslist 
The Grateful Dead, and a Steinway Piano. Denver Booker, Ross James's Wild Ride by Juliana Eau A softly gleaming 1909 Steinway Grand Piano is nestled comfortably in the back of Denver Booker, Ross James's at-home studio. Surrounded by production equipment and other music paraphernalia, the piano looks like any other instrument, but to James, it's a physical reminder of the full circle of his storied musical career. And a musician's life is anything but easy, something James discovered when he was nine years old and living in Michigan. I wanted to play trumpet in the sixth grade, and after two weeks of it, the band teacher told me that the trumpet wasn't for me and maybe music wasn't my thing, James recalls. And I was completely devastated, crushed, because I always loved music. But the next day, his mom bought him a guitar, and the impact of the rippling strings beneath his fingers was immediate. Since then, he says, I knew that's what I wanted to do. By 17, James was hustling, loading his plate with work as a freelance sound engineer in production and performing professionally with local bands. He took on every opportunity, from rock and roll concerts to political rallies, growing his production resume with steadfast determination. It's such a tough thing to break through as a musician, he says. Rather than having a normal day job and going the conventional route playing guitar on the side, I tried to immerse myself in the industry from high school on. Constantly hungry for more gigs, James kept an eye on local Craigslist pages. In 2010, after his move to the San Francisco Bay Area, James stumbled on an ad he felt was created especially for him, it was for an 18 to 24 year old guitar player and it listed two influences, Larry Campbell and Dave Rawlings, who were two players that I really like that a lot of people maybe don't know, he remembers. He responded to the ad and auditioned at the listed address, the house of Grateful Dead bassist Phil Lesh's youngest son, Brian Lesh. I wasn't a deadhead. I didn't grow up listening to the Grateful Dead or anything. And I'd never been to a house like that before, James says. And they had a grand piano in their basement. And I'd never seen a grand piano in a house at that point. Playing with Brian Lesh marked the beginning of a pivotal chapter in James's life. Whenever Brian was home, we played gigs. And Phil would always come to all of our little gigs at bars in the Bay Area. And I got to know him a little bit, James says. He was always super supportive. Phil Lesh opened a music venue and restaurant called Terrapin Crossroads in the Bay Area in 2012 and offered James a gig as a production assistant, occasionally calling on him to play with Lesh's Terrapin family band at the bar. So that sort of evolved into me being in his band for 10 years, James says. In the middle of that decade-long stint, James became Phil Lesh's manager for the Fare Thee Well Tour, in which surviving Grateful Dead members Bob Weir, Bill Kreutzmann, Mickey Hart, and, of course, Phil Lesh, celebrated 50 years of the seminal jam band. It's a bit of a wild ride, crazy to think about, James says, reflecting on his experience organizing multiple stadium shows that attracted more than 70,000 people each. We went all over the world playing together, and then I met my wife, who lives here, and that's what brought me to Denver. He met his wife, Megan Baldwin, in 2018 after playing at Red Rocks in Ophelia's Electric Soapbox for the first time with Phil Lesh's band, 
and Baldwin had just become the vice president of Edible Beats, the restaurant group that owns Ophelia's. She was talking to me about how Ophelia's was looking for somebody for the booker position, and I did so much of that in Terrapin, James says. I think she was jokingly saying one night, oh, you should do it. And I was like, that's an interesting idea. James has been a booker at Ophelia's since the fall of 2021. He stages such acts as Shamir Bailey and DJ LTJ Bukum and organizes events like Y2K dance parties and free brunch shows. He's an instrumental piece of our team, says Brian Butler, Ophelia's general manager. He caters to all genres, which is what we stand for. James books a combination of national and local acts, bringing big talent in Denver while curating the local music scene. I love that room so much, James says. Ophelia's has a special place in my heart and history. Every now and then, James still finds time to perform, bouncing between local Denver acts and nationally known artists. In 2016, he met breakout bluegrass star Billy Strings at the High Sierra Music Festival in California, and after a Strings performance at the First Bank Center this past February, James and Strings hosted a post-concert show with Andy Thorne at New Conscious in Denver. James even has a few events scheduled for August. He'll be playing at Ophelia's with Everyone Orchestra, acting as the musical director at Conscious Alliance's annual benefit and performing at the Gerald R. Ford Amphitheater in Vail. But what never fails to astound James is how one nondescript Craigslist ad accumulated into a lifetime of experiences. Everything from the 1909 Steinway Grand in James's studio, the same piano he saw at Brian Lesh's house back in 2010, to the commemorative statue marking the date of his first Red Rock show, can be traced back to that day he clicked on that ad. I don't have a huge blood family, but the connections that were made at Terrapin are some of the strongest lifelong friends that I'll ever have. That 10 years was a really special thing to be part of, a super unique moment in time that brought so many great people together, James says. I can't imagine. It would have been a totally different path if I hadn't seen that ad. Ross James and Everyone Orchestra, 9 p.m. Friday, August 18th, Ophelia's Electric Soapbox, 1215 20th Street. Tickets are $30 to $37. Kidridge is home to a boutique wine shop run by a certified sommelier by Kristen Kuchar. When their local wine shop closed, Evergreen residents Danny Rooney and her husband Ryan, who are originally from St. Louis, wanted to open a store of their own. For help with the project, Danny reached out to another St. Louis transplant, local restaurant vet Chad Michael George, who's a, regi- who's a certified sommelier and a graduate of the BAR five-day certification program. In turn, George connected the couple with Nathan Turk, who also has a good deal of experience in the local food and beverage scene. In 2021, the team launched Piney Wine and Spirits in the small town of Kidridge, which sits between Morrison and Evergreen, just 10 minutes up the road from popular hiking spot Lair of the Bear and many other trailheads. Now the shop is an unexpectedly well-stocked pit stop for wine lovers exploring the foothills. Turk, who runs day-to-day operations, originally moved to the Mile High to attend culinary school, 
at the now-closed Johnson & Wales University in 2007. He later went to Metropolitan State University of Denver, where, on a whim, he applied for a scholarship with the International Sommelier Guild, ISG. From there, he went on to the Court of Master Sommeliers after being encouraged by his ISG instructor. He also is a Bar five-day graduate. In 2014, while working as a server on Linger's rooftop, he became a certified sommelier. He also bartended at Linger, was the bar manager at Ophelia's, has staged at the famed Alinea in Chicago, and worked as the assistant general manager for Death & Company's award-winning Rhino location. At the Kidridge shop, the wine selection is guided by Turks' experience traveling through the French and Italian regions of Champagne, Northern Rhone, Piedmont, and Tuscany, which gave him an appreciation for small producers. Many of the wines available taste true to the varietals, which is incredibly important, Turk notes. All of the major wine regions are covered, but his personal love for Italian wines, especially from the northern part of the country, is clear. While not all of the wines at the shop are rare, there are many limited-release bottles on the shelves. Once they're out of stock, they're not coming back, Turk says. There are also some Colorado wines available from producers on the western slope, including the Storm Cellar, Wild Capture, and Aquila Cellars. The shop offers two wine club levels as well, Elk, $55 per month, and Brisket, $75 per month, the latter of which is named after Turk's Great Dane, who is a fan favorite when he makes an appearance at the store. All members receive 10% off all purchases and three bottles per month, selected to fit rotating themes such as Summer Fun, which included a sparkling Lambrusco, an Albarino, and a Grenache Syrah blend. Brisket level members get an additional bonus bottle. One goal is to help people feel heard, answer questions, and demystify the wine and spirits experience, says Turk, who uses his hospitality experience to make the shop more approachable. In addition to wine, Piney is also stocked with a large selection of spirits and beer, many of which are made locally. Piney Wine and Spirits is located at 26289 CO74 in Kidridge. It's open from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Thursday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Friday and Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sunday. For more information, call 720-287-0154 or visit pineywinespirits.com. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.